Now, most scholars, even those who aren't Christians, will tell you that they believe there was a man named Jesus who died around 30 to 33 AD. They may even grant that he was crucified by the Romans. But we Christians believe that Jesus was not just a man or a great teacher. We believe that Jesus was truly God. We believe that he was the true and perfect sacrifice for our sins. And what we believe about Jesus has eternal significance. It affects the trajectory not just in this life, but in the life to come. And it's something that we have to get correct. It's also something that even as believers, we need to be continually reminded of and can't reflect on enough, as Sidney reminded us. We live in a world where every single belief that anyone has about anything is constantly being challenged. And so we need to be sure that we do believe the most important things about Christ's death on that cross. Now, our passage this morning, there's so much in it, we could study it for years and not begin to plummet's depths. So I'm not going to try this morning. We're going to focus on three things that we really need to believe about Jesus' death on the cross. And so if there's something in here that grabs you and I don't touch on it, just pull me aside afterwards and we'll, I'll be happy to try and answer your question. Um, but our passage this morning is going to be in John chapter 19. We're going to start in verse 1, and we're going to go all the way to 37, and then we'll finish and do the resurrection next week. So if you are able, if you would stand with me for the reading of God's Word from John 19, starting in verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns, and they put it on his head, and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Take him for yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die, because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. Entering his headquarters again, he said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have the authority to release and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all, unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. And anyone who makes himself king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in Aramaic Gabbatha. And that was the day of preparation of Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried away, or they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to be crucified. And they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him. And with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription, put it on the cross and it read, Jesus of Nazareth the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write 
the king of the Jews, but rather write, this man said I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. And when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. And they said to one another, let us not tear it, but let's cast lots to see for it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says they divided my garments and among them for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did those things, but standing on the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdala. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill scripture, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there, and they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. They did not break his legs. One of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it is born witness. His testimony is true, and he knows what he is telling you the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken, and another, the scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. As the prophet Isaiah tells us, the grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you died for us. Lord, help us as we spend these next moments together. Help us to reflect on your death, on all that it means, and help us to look to you in faith, greater faith than we have right now. We pray this in your holy and your precious name. Amen. You may be seated. The first thing that we believe about Jesus' death, if you're taking notes in your bulletin, is we believe that Jesus died a king. We believe that Jesus died a king. The world may say that some wandering rabbi was crucified. Some may say that a man named Jesus died, but as Christians we believe that Jesus died as a king. He was no vagabond. He was no criminal. He was our king. This entire first section here, I think, it repeats this theme of Jesus' kingship. Over seven times, the word king is used. And I think his kingship is referred to more times than that. In my own Bible, I drew a little crown in the margins every time I saw his kingship mentioned or referred to. And the passage right before us at the end of chapter 18, it's all about Jesus being a king. He has this long conversation about Pilate, with Pilate about what his kingdom is and where is his kingdom. But right away, even when Jesus is beaten and flogged, we see that they have dressed him like a king. Verse 2, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns. They put it on his head and they arrayed him in a purple robe. They pretend that Jesus is a king. They put a crown on his head to mock and to torture him further and they give him a royal robe as a joke. 
And three, and they come up to him and they say, Hail, King of the Jews. And they strike him with their hands. Jesus is called a king, but instead of bowing to him, instead of showing him the respect that he is due, they beat him. They smack him. They hail him in jest instead of in honor. The idea that Jesus is a king is laughable to these men. Verse 5, when Jesus emerges, he emerges in Pilate's um, chambers in the garments of a king. Pilate says, behold the man. Pilate calls Jesus a man instead of a king. He should have emerged into the palace and been announced as, behold the king, which later Pilate does in verse 14. But we also see in verse 12, the Jews understand that Jesus is claiming to be their rightful king. From then on, Pilate, he seeks to release Jesus, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend, because anyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. The Jews recognize who Jesus is. They recognize that Jesus has claimed to be the Messiah. He has claimed to be the king. And later in 14, when Pilate emerges to pronounce judgment on Jesus, he then gives Jesus his proper title. That is the day of preparation of the Passover. It's the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold your king. Tragic irony here, I think, is after talking with Jesus further, Pilate now truly does believe that Jesus is a king. But the Jews don't want him as your king. I think that's why Pilate asked Jesus, Where are you from? He knows he's not really from Nazareth. He must be from somewhere else. In verse 15, and they cry out and they say, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? But the chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to be crucified. Notice what happens here. Nobody wants to claim Jesus as their king. Pilate says, he's your king. Pilate says, he's not my king, but he's definitely the Jewish king. The chief priests, the primary representatives of God. Among his people, the most important spiritual leaders in Israel's life, they look upon the Messiah. They look upon God himself and they say, we have no king but Caesar. They say, we don't want that king. 19, Pilate writes a description, the king of the Jews. Jesus is hung and murdered on that cross as a king. 20, the Jews, they read that description. They don't like it. For in the place where Jesus was crucified near the city, Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. Jesus did die as a king for the Jews, but he also died for the Greeks, those Latin, and all people everywhere. That's why it's written in all those languages, whether Pilate knew it or not. Jesus is the promised king of Israel, but he's also the king of all the cosmos for all people. And 21, the chief priests, they object again. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, don't write king of the Jews, but rather this man writes, say he said I'm the king of the Jews. Pilate answers, I've written what I have written. I think Pilate doesn't back down because deep down he knows the truth. The chief priest doesn't want to back down because deep down he also knows the truth and he's trying to deny it. In this section, over and over, you see that Jesus died as a king. Jesus truly is the king of kings. But the question is, do you believe that he's your king? Pilate thought Jesus was a king, but he wanted nothing to do with him. The Jews thought that Jesus was a king, but they wanted to kill him. The chief priest said, well, Jesus might be a king, but I'd rather serve Caesar. Many of us today have the same reaction. 
There were those who would rather serve the kings of this world than the king of kings. What about you? Who is your king? Because we all serve kings. Most people want to be their own kings, though. They serve nothing more than their own ambition or desires. But that's not a Christian response. To call oneself a Christian means to say that Jesus is my king. And the death of Jesus is good news. It is not the death of a martyr or a regular prophet. It is the death of our king, the king of another kingdom. And being a Christian has everything to do with our crucified king. Now, it might seem strange that this passage has so much to do with Jesus' kingship since it involves so much suffering and punishment. After all, when we think of kings, we think of them as ruling and reigning, yet Jesus appears to be conquered. We'll see in point number two is that Jesus is not being conquered. He is actually conquering through his death. Point number two is that Jesus died in control. Jesus died in control. It might seem to Jesus' disciples that everything is out of control. It might seem to them like they are losing Jesus. But Jesus is the one who is in control of every single thing that is happening. Jesus has not fallen into anyone's trap. They are all doing exactly what Jesus wants them to do. In verse 10, when Pilate is interrogating Jesus some more, Pilate's wondering why Jesus won't answer him. Right? And he says to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? So here Pilate, he's trying to flex his authority, his power, his control over Jesus. He's trying to tell Jesus, look, I'm in control of this situation. He's almost trying to tell Jesus to start groveling and begging. The pilot can do whatever he wants, so Jesus better start acting like it. But the reality is quite, quite different. Jesus answered him and says, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who has delivered me over to you as the greater sin. Jesus' response is, Pilate, you're not in control at all. Pilate, you only have authority because it's been given to you. Jesus has authority because he is God. Pilate has the authority of man, but Jesus has the authority of God. Which person should be begging in this scenario? Jesus' statement about Pilate having no authority unless it had been given to him from above, it's actually twofold. Primarily, it's talking about how Pilate only has authority because it was given to him by God, by Jesus. And by extension, because Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, the triune God, Jesus is the one who actually gave Pilate any authority that he has. Jesus is the one who could take Pilate's authority away from him. Jesus is the one who has authority to release Pilate or to kill him with only a word. Pilate might believe he's in control, but he's not. He's a pawn in a game much larger than he could possibly imagine. It's partially why Jesus tells him that the one who delivered Jesus over to Pilate has the greater sin. Jesus is telling him, it might seem like I'm on trial in front of you, but one day you're going to stand on trial in front of me. And you're going to be held accountable for your actions here, right now, today. And Jesus is acknowledging, Pilate, your sinfulness and you're ordering the execution of our God. It's not as grave as the sins of the Pharisees who've planned it or the sin of Judas who's betrayed him or the sin of Satan and his demons who are, think that they're working behind the scenes to make it happen. Because all those people know better, but Pilate's simply ignorant. But there's another layer to this false authority of Pilate. Jesus is saying that Pilate's authority has not just been given to him by God, it's also been given to him by Caesar. This is why in 12, Pilate wants to let Jesus go. He realizes he's dealing with something greater than he understands. He wants nothing to do with it. Wash my hands, be done with this. But Pilate finds out his control and authority is not quite as good as he imagined. 
And 12, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Pilate only has authority because Caesar allows it. And the Jews are telling Pilate, they're going to go above his head. We're going to talk to your supervisor about your actions. And now Pilate's trapped. Pilate seems like he, he acts like he has lots of control, but he has none. Jesus seems like he has no control over the situation, but it is all unfolding exactly according to his plan. Even as Jesus hangs, bloody, naked, and dying, he is in complete control. Even as Jesus and his body is slowly suffocating and decaying, everything around him happens according to plan. Three times in this passage, we see this phrase repeated. And it's repeated to make it obvious and clear to us. Jesus is in control. Verse 24, this was to fulfill Scripture. Verse 28, to fulfill Scripture. Verse 36, these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. And then 37 as well, and another Scripture. So look at these one at a time. First thing that happens, according to Scripture, was Jesus' clothes. Remember, they put that purple robe on him and the crown to mock his kingship. Maybe they might have thought it was funny. One soldier might have felt proud of himself for coming up with such a great idea. But it was really all according to God's plan. To fulfill promises that he made thousands of years ago. 23, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and they divided it into four parts. One part for each soldier and also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. They divide up the dead man's clothes. Put them in piles. Everybody gets to have a piece, but his tunic is really nice. His tunic's what they all want, and it's seamless. It's in one piece, so they don't want to tear that into four pieces and ruin it. 24, so they say to one another, let's not tear it. Let's cast lots to see who it could be. That's not their idea. That's God's. The rest of 24 is to fulfill scripture, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. It's a quotation from Psalms 22, verse 18. Psalms 22 is a psalm of David. It's a psalm that the king of Israel wrote about his own suffering, not realizing that it was foreshadowing and prophesying the true king that was to come after him. Much of Psalm 22 is fulfilled by Jesus. Though Luke doesn't mention it at all, the very first verse of that psalm is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because all the way back in the time of David, Jesus and God knew that this day would come. And Jesus planned to have these particular clothes so that he could wear them on this particular day so that these particular men would play a game of chance to see who got it. This man rolls the dice, but God determines how it lands. Something else I want to point out about Jesus' tunic, it tells us that it's seamless. I don't think it was only seamless so that the Roman soldiers wouldn't rip it. There's something else here. You see, there's someone else in Scripture who's commanded to have a tunic that is seamless, that is woven in one piece from top to bottom. Someone else is commanded to have a tunic that is never torn. That person is the high priest of Israel, the one who oversees all of the sacrifices, especially on the Day of Atonement. And here is Jesus on the day of atonement, the true day, performing the sacrificial act that all the other sacrifices pointed towards, and he does so with his priestly garments still intact because God is in control. Jesus was in control of his clothes. He was also in control of when he was thirsty in verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. 
Notice first, Jesus noticed everything else has been finished. He runs through his Messiah checklists and says, all right, I have accomplished and fulfilled every single promise that I have meant to at this point. Everything's unfolding exactly according to plans made before the foundations of the world. Now it's time for me to take a drink. There's only a few things left to do. There are two scriptures I think this refers to. The first is again in Psalms 22, which Jesus already referenced once. Psalms 22, 14, 15. I am poured out like water. All of my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted in my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. And my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Jesus is experiencing all of these things. His tongue is sticking to his jaws. His mouth is incredibly dry. I imagine him saying, I thirst. It came out more like a croak. It was hard to understand. 29, a jar full of sour wine stood there. And so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. We're not sure exactly what kind of sour wine this is. Some think maybe it was some kind of anesthesia, something that would help, you know, dull the pain or help them to die faster. Okay, because we know anything about the Romans. They're very merciful people, right? I don't think that makes any sense, um, especially considering their solution in a minute um, when those who are dying or taking too long isn't to just to kill them quickly, it's to break their legs so they suffer more. More than likely, I think this is some form of punishment or mockery or suffering. Um, after all, if any of you are, are wine drinkers, I don't think if I offered you sour wine on a sponge that you would be excited about that and want to take it. You'd probably pass. But the important part of this act is not what that wine did or didn't taste like, but that Jesus did it to fulfill the scriptures. Psalm 69 verse 21 says, They gave me poison for food and for my thirst. They gave me sour wine to drink. Jesus knew what they would offer him. Jesus knew that that bucket would be there with a sponge on a branch. And Jesus knew if he asked for a drink, that is what they would give him. And so he says, I thirst. Not because he's so thirsty he can't control himself, but because he is complete, in complete control of the situation, even over his thirst. And partially, I think, to be able to say the next thing that he will say. But we see here, Jesus is in control, even up to the very moment of his death. Almost all of us would love to be in control of the moment when we die. If we would let you pick when it could happen. None of you, we would want to pick, right? We would pick something good. We wouldn't want to pass a moment sooner than we intended. Particularly, we'd all choose, right, to pass peacefully, quickly, after reconciled with everyone we wanted to, gotten to say goodbye to everybody we cared about. Jesus gets to choose exactly when he dies. Jesus is in control of the last moment that that last breath leaves his lungs. And he chooses a death that none of us would choose out of his love for us. And so why does Jesus choose the moment that he does for his death in 31? Since it was the day of preparation... So that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath. For that Sabbath was a high day. It's Passover. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken. So they would be taken away. These men are taking too long to die. And the Sabbath is coming. So these religious leaders would like their wrongful executions to be hurried up a little bit. So they can get back to honoring God on the Sabbath. Their religious hypocrisy is stunning. So why do they want their legs to break? Well, the main reason is it will speed up their deaths. The ways you die in crucifixion is you suffocate slowly as your lungs and your inner organs it just all fills up with blood. You hang there as it gets slowly harder and harder to breathe until you finally can't. 
That is, if you don't bleed out first or die from any of the other tortures and complications that come from being crucified. So their broken legs is going to lead them to suffocating faster. 32, the soldiers came. They break the legs of the first man and they break the legs of the other who had been crucified with him. But they come to Jesus, they see he's already dead. And they don't break his legs. Jesus dies before they get to that part. It's not because he's not as tough. It's not because he can't handle it. He dies because in verse 30, he gives up his spirit. Jesus chose the moment of death. He suffered the full weight and the full punishment of the cross until now because he was in control. And again, he does it to fulfill the promises that God made thousands of years before. Verse 36, for these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. This is a reference to Exodus 12, verse 46. It's a command for how the lamb must be sacrificed. It's a command for how to observe the Passover, which they are currently observing. The perfect lamb, it must be without blemish, and it must not have any of its bones broken. So it's not just instructions for Israel's sheep. It was foreshadowing Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross. His bones are not broken so that he would remain symbolically and in reality the perfect sacrifice for our sins. So that his, by his blood could let death and judgment pass us by as the angel of death passed over the houses of the Israelites. In 34, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. So they stabbed Jesus with a spear to make sure he's really dead and not just faking it. And Jesus lets them do this. Jesus dies again so that it will fulfill Scripture in 37. And another Scripture says, They will look upon Him whom they have pierced. You can find that passage in Zechariah 12, verse 10. Another passage from the prophet we read this morning. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on Me, on Him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for Him. Jesus is the one who was pierced. Jesus is the one who we must look to for grace and for mercy. And over and over and over again, we see Jesus is in control. Even after his spirit has left his human body, because Jesus has not lost at this moment. After all, what is he doing here? He is in the grave. He is setting the captives free, the saints who have waited for him in hope. And he is rejoicing with the thief in paradise. Because Jesus is always in control. What I want you to see this morning is that the same God who was in control on the cross is in control right now today. The providence and the sovereignty of God is not some dry theological idea. It's not something to be meant that we just sit around and argue about, well, okay, well, how does God's sovereignty and his, the control of Jesus, how does that square with my freedom and my autonomy and my free will? It's not meant to be that. It's meant to be a refuge that we run to and that we hide in. It is His sovereignty, it is an anchor that keeps us safe in the storm. His control is what gives us hope when all of life falls apart. You say, I don't understand anything, but I know, God, that you are in control. What I want you to know is that if Jesus was in control at the darkest moment of the universe when God died, if Jesus was in control even as God himself dies, then Jesus is in control right now in whatever is going on in your life. And you can have hope. You don't have to understand it. You don't have to like it. You don't have to be free from doubt. But you can look upon the one who is pierced and know that God is in control. If he was in control then, he's in control now, no matter how dark the night gets. So Jesus is in control. Point number three. 
arguably the most important, is that Jesus died to save us. Number three, Jesus died to save us. This is the essential point. If this wasn't true, then the cross ceases to have the same significance. Because Jesus could have just died as a king, could have just died and still been in control, and that's an interesting story about how awesome God is, but Jesus died to save sinners. Jesus died to purchase our salvation. Jesus endured the crucifixion, not just to theoretically give us an opportunity to be saved, but to save us in actuality. And Jesus says in verse 30, some of those beautiful words in the Gospels, and John's the only one who records them. He said, it is finished. And he doesn't just say those words that mean I'm done, I want to die now. He speaks these words as the mouthpiece of God, as the prophet, because he is God himself. He says, it is finished. These words from Jesus, they're prophetic. We've already seen Jesus died as a king. Jesus acts as the high priest. He presides over the sacrifice. And he is the sacrifice for us as our mediator. And now Jesus prophesies like a prophet. And he prophesies naked like Isaiah did in chapter 20. Isaiah prophesied naked to show Israel that there was no hope for salvation in anyone other than God. And Jesus prophesies naked to tell us he is our only hope. And he tells us that he has accomplished exactly what he wanted to. The prophet speaks and says the sacrifice has been accepted. The prophet speaks and says your debt has been paid. The prophet speaks and says that the angel of death has passed over you. The prophet speaks and says that you are clean. The prophet speaks and says your salvation has been accomplished. The prophet speaks and says God has won. Those three words mean that any who want, that any sinner, no matter how far gone you think you are, any person, no matter how unlovable you believe that you are, no matter how, what sins you have committed, no matter how dark and gruesome and truly horrible maybe they are, salvation is here for you if you want it. It's already finished and been accepted. You must just put your faith in Jesus and receive it. One of the last prophecies mentioned in 37 is from Zechariah 12. And that passage continues in Zechariah 13, verse 1. says, On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David, for the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from their sin and uncleanness. On this day of atonement, on this day that Jesus died, a fountain was opened. The fountain of Jesus' blood was opened wide. The curtain of the temple is torn. God has descended from Mount Zion. And any who want can come and drink from the fountain of living water. Any who want can come and be washed and cleaned by the blood of Jesus. Any who want can be washed and cleaned from their sin and their uncleanness. Anything that makes you feel that you are too removed from God. Anything that actually keeps you from being able to be in the presence of a holy God. Jesus can wash away. It can all be washed away because the fountain of Jesus' blood is open for us at the cross. So come and be washed. If you're a Christian. If you're a follower of Jesus. This is what our baptism pointed us toward. So at our baptisms, they are reminders that we are not just washed in some water in a tank or in a river or in some body of water somewhere. That we emerge from the water in new life, having been cleaned forever by the fountain of Jesus' blood. Because it is finished. Jesus did not say it started. Jesus didn't say, well, I did my part. Now it's up to you. Just do your best. Jesus didn't say, well, I tried. Now as long as you don't mess it up and you're good enough, you can come and be with me. Good luck. Jesus said, it is finished. 
He says, I did all the work of your salvation. All that's left for you is to just receive it. Stop trying to earn it. Stop trying to gain it. Stop trying to run from it. Just jump in the fountain. Be washed. Jesus died for your salvation. And if you're here and you don't know Jesus, I invite you to look on the one who is pierced. I you to put your faith in the God who loves you and the God who died for you. He didn't just die for other people. He didn't just die for the world generically. He died for you personally. Accept his love. And if you're a Christian, as many of you are, you too need to accept the love of Jesus. Remember that our salvation came through grace. Remember that God died because he loved you. That God died in order to save you. That he died in order to forgive you for all of those sins that all of us are going to be committing for the rest of our lives. And he said, it's already finished. So stop trying to jump out of the fountain. Stop trying to clean yourself on your own. Stay in God's grace and mercy and let God himself clean you. So in summary, where we've been this morning, you've seen three things that we must believe about the cross. We believe that Jesus died a king, that Jesus died in control, and Jesus died to save us. So remember the death of your Savior King, that no matter what death and suffering your life brings, know that Jesus is in control and a resurrection is coming. Let's bow our heads and pray as our worship team comes to lead us once more. Lord, we thank you that you are the fountain of living water, that you are the, the fountain that washes us clean, that we can sing songs, that we are washed in the blood that sounds weird and crazy to the world, and it is that the God who made everything would come and die for us and would save us, people who do not deserve it, people who did not ask for it, people who would have shouted out along with those leaders, crucify him, crucify him, yet you died anyway to save us. Lord, help us, awaken our hearts. If our hearts have grown cold to the, the wonder of you and your word and your love and the things of God, would you uh, help us to fall in love with you again? Would you help us to be amazed again by the grace of Jesus, by the wonder of the cross and the beauty of the resurrection? Lord, this Easter, would we be amazed by the same old story that changes everything. We pray these things in your holy and your precious name, our crucified and risen Lord. Amen. Would you stand as we worship our Savior, the King of Kings, one more time. Praise the King of Kings. Our benediction this month is from Hebrews 13. And I love this passage because it reminds us of the resurrection and everything that the blood of Jesus accomplishes. And what this benediction reminds us that I love or was thinking of particularly is it doesn't just wash us clean, but it also equips us with everything that you need to follow Jesus. Hear it from Hebrews 13, 20. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be all glory forever and ever. Amen. God bless you. Go in peace.